welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today is February 4th, and today we're going to look at Genesis 35. Just as a reminder, I I go over one chapter every day, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas and themes and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. Well, let's get into our reading today from Genesis 35. Genesis 35 says this, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you, and, and and when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror of God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Alon Bakuth. And so God appeared to Jacob again when he came for Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be called your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And there they journeyed with him from Bethel. And when there was still some distance from Ephrath, uh, Rachel went into labor, and he had hard labor. And when, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Anoi. But, but his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died, and he, she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and laid with Bethel, his father's concubine, and Israel never heard of it. And now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben's, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. 
the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamaram. And, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirith Arabe, that is at Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, when we last read about Jacob, he had settled near the city of Shechem in Genesis 33, apparently thinking that he had fulfilled his vow there to worship the Lord upon his return to Canaan in Genesis 28. However, as we last saw, his stay in Shechem also produced rape and slaughter in Genesis 34, indicating his decision to live there was not wise. In fact, Jacob's anger at losing his good name and not the violation of Dana, Dana or the ruthlessness of Simeon and Levi, it showed that his foolishness affected him spiritually, clouding his knowledge of the Lord's will, and it revealed a wander, wavering faith in verses 30 through 31 of our chapter today. And yet we note Jacob worshipped the one true God, and so it's no surprise that the Lord compassionately intervenes to wake him up from his spiritual stupor. And so we, as we continue on in our study of Genesis, the Almighty appears in verse 1 of our chapter today to Jacob and Shechem and reveals that Jacob's vow is unfulfilled until he returns to Bethel. Now, the Lord has a plan in which Jacob plays a part, and he will not let Jacob's dulled spiritual senses stand in the way. We are greatly encouraged by this, that the providences of God watches for our salvation, even when it most seems to sleep, as John Calvin comments. Now, our Lord Creator's call to Jacob, coming as it does right near the end of his story in Genesis, it leads us to view Jacob as a new Abraham. Just as Jacob's grandfather was called to offer up a sacrifice in Genesis 22 near the end of his life, so too is Jacob commanded to go up, fulfill his vows, and worship God at Bethel in verse 1 of Genesis 35. And so once more we see God's good pleasure to bring his sinful people back to himself, even if they spent years in the spiritual wilderness. Today he continues to embrace his prodigal sons and daughters, calling them to return again in faith and repentance in the Lord. Now Jacob, of course, made a vow to worship the Lord at Bethel, and now he's exhorted to keep it. Promises made to God are to be kept at their proper time, according to Deuteronomy 23:21. But even though Jacob was delayed, there is still opportunity for him to be obedient. Matthew Henry says this, When we have vowed a vow to God, it is best not to defer the payment of it, and yet better late than never. Matthew Henry also says this, As many as God loves, he will remind of neglected duties one way or another, by conscience or by providences. You see, the Holy Spirit will not let us forget the vows that we have made to serve him. Have you left any promises unkept before God? Maybe you have made a pledge of a certain amount of money to your church. Perhaps you have children that have you have promised to raise them in the fear of God. Do not neglect to keep your godly vows. Jacob's role as a new Abraham is even more apparent in our chapter. Just as his grandfather went up to Canaan in obedience to the call of God, according to Genesis 12, and, and we see it in Acts 7 as well, so too does Jacob arise and act when the Lord appears to him in Shechem. Now, Jacob takes several steps before going to Bethel that were instructive for the ancient nation of Israel and remains applicable for every Christian today. 
First, Jacob orders his family to put away their foreign deities in verse 2. Always the first step for anyone who wants to serve the one true God. Abraham abandoned the idols of his fathers, as Joshua 24, 2-3 says, and the first commandments given to Israel after leaving Egypt involved putting away all rival gods, according to Exodus 21-6. Now, Jacob's injunction in Genesis 35, 2, it shows God's people that casting off idolatry was a prerequisite for covenant renewal, as we see in Joshua. Joshua 24, 1 through 15. Today, New Covenant believers uh, renew their dedication to the Lord by abandoning the idol of self, as we see in 1 John 5, 21. And that is to say, whenever we sin, we place our desires in the place of the law of God, and thus we make ourselves lawgivers. But in turning from sin, we admit that we are not sovereign and recognize that only our Creator sits on the throne. Secondly, Jacob's household should have been wholly devoted to the Lord, and yet his family owned idols. And even if these gods were not worshipped, they served as a good luck charm, and they polluted the worship of Yahweh. The presence of idols in the patriarch's clan, it reminds the Lord's people in every age to make sure their family's devotion is to the Lord alone. Our work of discipleship never ends, and we cannot assume our children are Christians just because they go to church every Sunday. Matthew Henry writes, In those families where there is a face of religion, many times there is much amiss and more strange gods than one would suspect. So this overarching command to forsake idols, it teaches us about Christ. Jesus demands absolute allegiance uh, to the gospel in Matthew 8, 18-22. This call to follow him alone is an especially clear indication that our Savior is one with the Lord who, through Jacob, called his people to cast away any other potential rivals. Whom do you love above all else? Is it a, a child or a spouse? Maybe it is not a person, but a job or a hobby. We must never think ourselves immune to temptation to love something else more than our Savior and Lord and King. And, and if we're not willing to sacrifice all else, we cannot be Jesus' disciple, as Jesus himself says in Luke 14.33. He must be our greatest love, our greatest hope, and our greatest desire. Can others see that you love him above all else? All of us should be known by our love for and service to Christ. Now, when Jacob called his family to repentance in preparation for their journey from Shechem to Bethel, in Genesis 35, 1-3, idolatry was not the only sin that was renounced. In, in addition to his idols, his wives and his children surrendered their earrings, according to verse 4, which are probably part of the goods taken when Simon and Levi led the slaughter of the Shechemites in Genesis 34, 25-29. So the family recognizes the wrongness of their deceit and their murder, and they give up the jewelry plundered from Shechem to show their contrition. Now, our chapter it demonstrates how the Lord promptly rewarded this repentance with a terror from God that fell upon the inhabitants of the land as Jacob's entourage made its way to Bethel in Genesis 35.5. And once again, the Almighty's promise to be guardians of his people is vindicated, and the future Israelite conquest of Canaan foretold. Later on, Rahab would tell the Israelite spies that Jericho and its surrounding area feared the army led by Joshua in Joshua 2, 1-14. Ancient Israel could expect God to reward their obedience just as he blessed Jacob's faithfulness on his way to Bethel. And, and among these blessings were fertility and success in battle, as well as the Lord's pledge that Israel's enemies would fear his people in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. But can we, who are God's own 
today rightly expect such blessing as well, especially since so many believers face intense suffering? The answer to this question is yes. As long as we remember the Lord's fullest reward for our faithfulness will not come until the new heavens and the new earth. Old Covenant Israel could expect hardships even when the people were obedient. It was possible for accidents to happen and even premature deaths to result even when the covenant was fully kept, as you see in Numbers 35, 22-29. Likewise, we should expect the Father to repay our service to Him by providing for us and protecting us even when we do suffer for the sake of His name, since the best is yet to come. As Matthew Henry comments, the way of duty is the way of safety. Since those who persevere, uh, persevere, serve Christ, are storing up great rewards for them in the future. And when we consider the Lord's blessing, there are two errors that can be made. For either we can expect too much in this age, perfect health, wealth, and on and on, or we can think that God does not reward his people at all before death. We must be careful not to fall into either extreme. If you're suffering for Christ today, know that you will be rewarded in the age to come, if not beforehand. If you are in need, please know that Jesus Christ blesses your obedience. You know, Deborah, the nurse nanny who had long cared for Rebecca, died soon after Jacob returned to Bethel and was buried under an oak tree named Alan Bakuth, or Oak of Weeping. And in the ancient Near East, oaks were often chosen as places to build shrines. And God's people also followed this practice in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. Commemorating Deborah with an oak, it indicates that she was dearly loved and would be sorely missed. Deborah would have been quite elderly when she died and was a woman of great faith who, like Abraham, left home for a strange land. Rebecca's death and burial, it's not chronicled here, probably because she died before Jacob returned to Canaan. She is the only matriarch whose infant is not recorded in, in Genesis, and thus we ought to take note of it. Rebecca had faith, but she sinned when she deceived Isaac in chapter 27. Commentators believe Moses did not document Rebekah's death, a holy and solemn occasion in ancient Israel, to demonstrate the Lord's displeasure with her. Now, Rebekah's fallen nature is tied to Adam's transgression, through which sin and death in, enslave mankind. Since Adam, a man, ruined God's good creation, another Adam, a man, must crush Satan and van vanquish evil from the universe. Salvation is an undoing of Adam's fall and finally results in a people who will do what Adam failed to do, rule over the earth in holiness. Now, this need for a second Adam has been clear since his fall. Uh, now, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and their offspring are all commanded to multiply, to take dominion as God's royal representatives, just as Adam was. And in our chapter, our father repeats these injunctions to Isaac's son, Israel, ordering him to multiply and produce kingly descendants to rule over the good land. In short, the Lord tells Jacob to be a new Adam. And you see... All the aforementioned Adams failed, and thereby our Father shows us that only one perfect man can undo Adam's fall. This flawless one is a God-man, Jesus Christ, as we see in Romans 5, 18-21. Secular psychology has rightly caused many believers to be wary of an emphasis on self-esteem found in many areas of our life today. And, and while secular attempts to improve one's self-image are questionable at best, there is in Scripture a high dignity given to mankind, especially those who trust in Christ alone. You see, in the Lord Jesus, we can fulfill our original mandate to rule wisely over the earth in righteousness. What can give us a greater feeling of self-worth than that? Now, the first half of Genesis 35 has many remarkable similarities with the binding of Isaac found in Genesis 22, 1-19. 
And though both patriarchs would live for many years following these events, Jacob and Abraham are no longer the primary focus of Moses' interest following Genesis 35, 1-15 and Genesis 22, 1-19, respectively. This indicates a transition is in the works. Just as Abraham's obedience paved the way for a new focus on Isaac, so too does Jacob's faithfulness provide a segue into the story of Joseph, as we're going to look at as we work through uh, the book of Genesis. In fact, Jacob endured a trial of faith as he traveled through a hostile country as we see in genesis 34 30 through 35 5 just like abraham had to take a long journey and trust god to come through with him for him in genesis 22 7 through 8 see god reaffirmed his promise to abraham and to his grandson after their obedience now the repetition of abraham's obedience and blessing a generation later in jacob's life it provided hope to ancient israel that the lord would be faithful to his word in all generations and it encourages us today that the lord is at work in our lives in fact in verses 13 through 15 it's akin to jacob's earlier offering at bethel in genesis 28 18 through 22 except that god gives grander pledges when he appears the second time now Yahweh tells Jacob that he will bear kings in Genesis thirty-five eleven. In fact, the command to multiply given in this verse is better since it's already produced greater results for him than for his father or grandfather. And unlike Abraham or Isaac, who each bore one son of promise, Jacob produced 11 sons with one more on the way. This repetition and this progression of the promise, it teaches us a vital lesson. We all feel like our lives are unimportant and even boring at times. Their sources may change, but the types of problems we, we, we do not change. But we must obey the Lord at, in the same way, in the same sort of difficulties, day in and day out. But see, God ordains this monotony, making the Christian life a spiral, not a wheel. And though life can seem wearingly repetitive, we do not just spin our wheels as we endeavor daily to serve the Lord. Our faithfulness in the mundane tasks and even grand ones, it moves us forward towards a great reward, as we see in Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through 30. Now, Jacob's life was repetitive. He worshiped again and again at Bethel. He, he faithfully did the same task every day for 20 years in service to his crooked father-in-law, as we looked at in Genesis 31. And yet, the word God gives to Jacob near the end of his life is even greater than the one he receives before he learned to lean on God and even the mundane tasks. No believer is ignored by the Lord. God sees and rewards our daily service to our spouses, our children, our friends, and our neighbors. We read what happened after the Lord visited Jacob a second time at Bethel in verses 9 through 15 of our chapter today. Tragically, death once more strikes God's people as Israel and his clan move southward from Shechem to Bethlehem, the famous town located north of the city of Jerusalem. Jacob's beautiful and beloved wife, Rachel, does not make it all the way to the end of that journey, verse 19 tells us. And Rachel's death would have not been very surprising, for many women uh, died in childbirth in the ancient world. But we still feel sympathy for Jacob nonetheless. And yet the birth of Rachel's last son in verses 16 through 18 vindicates again one lesson God has taught us repeatedly in our look at Genesis. He is faithful to his people even in the darkest of times. He enabled Abraham to rescue Lot from Shalander's mighty confederation of kings in Genesis 14. And he would not let Abimelech block Isaac's access to water in Genesis 26. With Benjamin, the Lord showed himself true in the midst of Jacob's sorrow. You see, God's grace in all of this is clear because he gives Rachel a chance to see her prayer answered just before her death. 
She asked for one more son when Joseph was born in Genesis 30, 22-24, and with Benjamin, her request is granted. He, he starts out life as Ben Anoit, son of my sorrow, but is renamed Benjamin, son of my right hand by his father, in verse 18. This highlights the joy Jacob found in this son and recalls his love for Rachel in his preferred right hand more than the tragic circumstances of his birth. Matthew Henry writes, Jacob, because he would not renew the sorrowful remembrance of his mother's death, every time he recalled his son by his name, changed his name. In fact, moreover, the name Bennett, Noah, and Benjamin indicate things to come for Jacob's child. Pain and sorrow would attend his birth, but Benjamin is the last of Israel's sons and signals a good future, a nation of 12 tribes. One evangelist would later cite Jeremiah's reference to Rebekah's sorrow to show that, that though that his fellow Israelites were under Rome's heel, the birth of the one from the God's right hand signaled a better future than any previously imagined in Matthew 2, 16-18. You see, God in his providence, he brings the greatest good out of the darkest times. Benjamin provided tangible evidence to Jacob of the Lord's unwavering commitment to make him a great nation in Genesis 35, 11. We, we should be looking for and even trusting in the Lord's mercy, the strongest when times are their darkest and hope seems most distant. Do you seek out and help others look for the Father's grace even in tragedy? Well, our chapter describes a heinous act that occurred following Rachel's death while Jacob lived in the, in, the, in the land beyond the Tower of Eder, according to Genesis thirty-five twenty-one, Reuben, his oldest son, laid with Bilah in verse 22, Rachel's maidservant and concubine to her husband, according to Genesis 31 through 8. In other words, Reuben committed incest with Israel's surrogate wife. Moses only reports that Jacob heard of this act in Genesis thirty-five twenty-two, and offers no explicit moral judgment. This short account is meant to get us to pause and reflect on the horror of the deed. The law condemns such relationships according to Leviticus 18.8 and Leviticus 20.11. And incest is one of the main reasons God removed the Canaanites from the promised land. Um, now, the majority of pagan nations did not even support this practice. Hammurabi's famous law code re reflecting the customs of Babylon in Jacob's day lists this kind of incest as a crime. Centuries later, the apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for tolerating a man who took his father's wife as his own in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, Reuben's transgression will not go unpunished. Jacob later blesses Judah with preeminence instead of his older son, according to Genesis uh, 49, 1-12 who should have ordinarily received this blessing. In fact, the crossing of sexual boundaries does not exhaust the evil of this act. First, he is attempting to supplant his father, just as Absalom did when he lay with David's concubines in 2 Samuel 16, 15-22. And it's also important to state that Reuben was the son of Leah, the wife from whom Jacob hated. Reuben is hoping to defile his father's concubine, Billah, so that the maid of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, will not become his newly beloved spouse. He is trying to grab Jacob's favor for Rachel's sons, an inkling of the strife between the sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah that blossoms in the chapters to come. Joseph and Benjamin, favored because of Rachel, will suffer because of their brothers, most of whom were Leah's sons, according to chapters 37 through 45. Still, as John Calvin comments, Reuben's place in God's redemptive plan remained firm and sure. His sin cost him the superior position, but God keeps him as one of the 12 tribes of Israel, as we see in Numbers 1, 21 through 22. 
Now, Reuben's jealousy of Rachel and her sons it motivated him to commit the heinous act of incest so that he and his mother might be the beloved ones of Jacob. And such envy provokes evil in a multitude of ways. Adam and Eve brought ruin to the earth when they were jealous of God's autonomy and wanted it for themselves. Envy of church leaders or job supervisors provokes outright rebellion or gossip that tears down authority. Are you guilty of this today? Well, Genesis 35 ends with the account of the death and burial of Isaac. And we need to know, uh, once again, that chronologically speaking, Isaac actually died somewhere between chapters 36 and 50, and not prior to Joseph's uh, descent into Egypt as recorded in Genesis 37. Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born, and he was therefore about 100 years old when his younger son was exiled to Padamara. Esau was 40, as was his twin brother, when his marriage to the Hittite prompted Isaac to send Jacob away. If one child was born per year after Jacob married Leah in, his, in year seven as Laban's slave, then Joseph, Jacob's 12th child, was likely born after living in Pattern Ram for about 20 years. Now, Jacob would have been 60 at this point and Isaac 120. So if Joseph went into Egypt at age 17, according to chapter 37, his grandfather Isaac would have been around 137 years at that time, thereby living about 43 years longer before his death at age 180, according to Genesis 35, 28. Now, Moses records Isaac's death at this point in the narrative, not because he's unaware of the details. The generations of Isaac began in verse 19 are now over. Jacob, the primary actor in this phase of history, will recede into the background so that Moses may focus on Joseph and his brothers. Esau and Jacob, who are at odds uh, when this period began, are now reconciled and able to bury their father in peace, even though Isaac does not uh, die until after Joseph is exiled. Now, Moses is moving on, using the space he has left to explain how Jacob's children end up in Egypt in the first place. And regardless of what happened, Isaac died with, without seeing his children in full possession of Canaan. This promise from God is a future hope to Israel's second patriarch, just as it was for Abraham. And yet Isaac's burial at Hebron in the same grave as his father, the only piece of the promised land the patriarchs are owed, according to Genesis 49, 28-33, and the place where the Lord swore an oath to Abraham, is significant. It shows that they still trusted Yahweh to keep his word for, in laying their bones, there they testified the land was their own country, despite yet not fully possessing it. Now, Genesis 35, it shows us how each generation of God's people must trust him to do what he says, even if the full realization of his promise remains in the future. Jacob reaffirmed his trust in the Lord when he buried Isaac in the only uh, piece of Canaan the family owned, and when he moved to revitalize the faith of his family, calling them to put away their foreign gods. Each generation must likewise reform the church according to the word of God and trust our Father anew. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and today is February 4th, and we've looked at Genesis 35. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.